I tell you what, we've had a great morning already, have we not? In fact, we might just uh, have an invitation and call it a day, except uh, we do have radio time to fill, so I guess, I guess I'll have to preach. If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel 37. Dr. Scott, we've been reading through the Bible this year, and, uh, and I've been preaching through the Bible as, as we're reading through that, and we've spent a lot of time in the prophets, and all of the prophets have a very similar message. They're preaching to Judah and Israel about their unfaithfulness, their wickedness, and that if they don't turn from their idolatry and their immorality and in their injustice and turn back to God and begin to practice justice and righteousness, then God's going to judge them. And He's not talking about a slap on the wrist. He's talking about invasion, destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, and deportation of the people out of their promised land. And do the people listen to these prophets? No. And so we have heard from Jeremiah. He has talked about the siege and the fall of Jerusalem. He described for us the people being carted away into captivity in Babylon. And among those taken away was a young would-be prophet named Ezekiel. And his book opens, he's sitting on the bank of a drainage ditch in Babylon, mourning the fate of his people when he has this amazing vision of the glorious presence of God departing Jerusalem and coming to Babylon. And God speaks from this vision to Ezekiel and sends him to be a prophet, both to the people there in Babylon in captivity, but also to proclaim another word of warning to those still living in Jerusalem and Judea that if they don't change their ways, an even worse fate is waiting for them. Now much of Ezekiel's message, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and these other prophets, is a lot of judgment. It's a lot of woe and mourning and lamentation, but there's also a lot of hope. Ezekiel and Jeremiah both have a lot to say about not just what has happened, but what is yet to come. The restoration of God's people. In fact, a lot of the, the imagery and language from Ezekiel is later used by Jesus and John to talk about the second coming of Christ and the new creation. We heard one of those in our New Testament reading when John had this vision in Revelation 21.5 and Jesus said to him, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. That is a major theme in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel's message to the exiles and to the remnant left behind in Judea, that, that yes, God has brought His judgment, but there is coming a time when He will make all things new. And that is a promise for us today as well. So let's just spend a few minutes looking at what Jeremiah and Ezekiel describe. What are the things that God promises to make new? And the first one is that He promises to make new hearts, a new heart. As we read through the Bible, it's easy to get fed up with Israel, isn't it? Don't you get tired of their constant rebellion? Don't you want to kind of look at them and say, wake up, what's wrong with you people? Don't you get it? Stop worshiping these idols and turn to God. But we have to be careful about getting on our high horse because their problem is our problem, and that is the sin problem. If we're not careful, we can overlook our own tendencies to be stubborn and rebellious. Jeremiah lamented to God about this, about the people. He said to, to God, he said, Lord, you are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. And so God explains to Jeremiah. He explains the condition of the human heart. The Lord says, the heart is deceitful above all things 
and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful and beyond cure. Now both Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about how hard-hearted God's people had become. Their hearts had become so hard that they were like stone. They were like the tablets of stone the Ten Commandments were written on. But rather than there being commandments written on the stone of their heart, it was their sin. It was their breaking of those commandments that were engraved. Jeremiah 17.1 says that their sin is engraved with an iron tool inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts. You see, sin is not just some external factor that we run into from time to time. Sin pervades our hearts. We are all by nature covenant breakers and by ourselves incapable of obedience. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus confronted the religious leaders who thought that, you know, people just need to be better at keeping the law. They thought that it was external impurities that defiled people. And so if the people could just keep themselves away from sinful and impure things, you know, if they would just stop going to these R-rated movies, if they would just stop listening to these lyrics, these music with vulgar lyrics, if they would just stop hanging around with the wrong people, then the people would be holy. But Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And he goes on to list a bunch of evil things. And he says all these evils come from inside and defile a person. You see, our cold, hard hearts are incapable of being faithful to the Lord. And there's no cure. There's no cure for our sinful hearts. We need new hearts. We need heart transplants. Now, I don't know what it would be like to go through a heart transplant, really. I mean, just to to physically have someone else's heart put in my chest to beat in my chest. But I can imagine, and I've read stories of what a life-changing experience that is. In fact, one such transplant made national news last year. Conrad Ruland was a 6'6", 270-pound NFL tight end who had a brain aneurysm last year and died. But he was an organ donor. And his heart happened, just happened. This is amazing how this works. It went to the 18-time All-Star, 1977 American League MVP, and seven-time batting champion, Rod Carew. And three months after that transplant, Rulin's family got to meet Carew. And as you can imagine, it was an emotional meeting. Carew was beyond grateful for the life-giving gift of their son's heart. And they were overwhelmed at being able to hear their son's heart beat once again. And so after the tears and the laughter and the hugs, Rulin's mother told him, My son's heart is beating in your chest, so you are now a part of our family. And you'll be invited to family functions whether you want to come or not. You know, and that's the way it is when we come to faith in Christ. We undergo a heart transplant. Your your heart of stone is removed and you receive the heart of a man who died 2,000 years ago on a Roman execution cross. The heart of Christ now beats in your chest. His blood runs through your veins and you become a part of His Father's family, the church. And this is what God promises to do in Ezekiel 11. He says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. 
Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. One other heart recipient said, I was born again when I received Ashley's heart. I'm just so grateful. I will live every day in honor of her. Maybe this morning you're here and you need a heart transplant. Jesus Christ wants to take out your, your heart of stone with your sins engraved on it and He wants to give you a new heart. He wants to give you His heart. And when you receive the heart of Christ, you truly are born again. And how can we as Christians who have received the heart of Christ, how can we not be overwhelmed with gratitude at this indescribable gift? How can we not want to live every day in honor of Him? A new heart is essential to being a follower of Christ and to live as a citizen in a new kingdom. And that's the next thing Ezekiel and Jeremiah both talk about, this new kingdom. You see, not only did each individual in Israel need that personal transformation of their heart, but the nation as a whole needed a corporate transformation into a new kind of kingdom. And that's exactly how this happens. It, it happens one person's heart at a time, as Dr. Scott so beautifully illustrated in that story. An entire village was transformed because of the Word of God, because of its impact on the hearts of individuals. And so if we want to see revival break out in our church, if we want to see First Baptist Church transformed into a new kind of church, guess where it has to begin? With me and with you. If we want to see a spiritual awakening transform this nation, guess where it begins? With you and with me. And that is what was happening in Israel. For these exiles in Babylon, for the remnant left behind in Jerusalem, this new kingdom would find its expression first and they're becoming a new unified nation. A new nation. That's the meaning of the story that we're going to look at in a few minutes of the Valley of Dry Bones. But in that same chapter... And that's the chapter I asked you to turn to. Look with me in chapter 37, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me and God spoke to Ezekiel and told him to take two sticks of wood and on one stick write Israel, one stick write Judah, and then unite them in his hand so they look like one stick. And he says in verse 18, when your countrymen ask you, why won't you tell us what you mean by this, say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And he kind of reiterates, it's sort of a little repetitive here, uh, but look down at verse 21. And say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land and on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them. And they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all their sinful backslidings and I will cleanse them. They will be My people and I will be their God. Once more, Israel and Judah would be united as one. And we will see this promise fulfilled in Jesus' day, but there's a, a deeper and more eternal fulfillment of this still yet to come. But what a hopeful vision of the future. Oneness among God's people. And they will be His people. He will be their God. And no more will they, will they practice idolatry. No more will they have this double-minded rebelliousness. They will be a new nation. And a new nation needs what? A new king. 
Now, we know one of Israel's greatest weaknesses, as we've read through the Bible, we, can, we see it time and again, are these wicked kings. And you may remember that they wanted to have a king so they could be like the other nations around them. And Samuel warned them what would happen if they had a human king, but they insisted, and so God gave them what they wanted. And Jeremiah, several times in the book of Jeremiah, he talks about, and the, and the Lord talks about, that, hey, you're suffering this because of your wicked kings and because you followed after these wicked kings. But Ezekiel goes on to explain that this new king would transform the people just as their new hearts would so that they will follow God's laws and be careful to keep His covenants. Jeremiah talks about that from this failed line of, of earthly kings will come a, a righteous branch that will spring up. And Jeremiah describes this king as a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he'll be called the Lord, our righteousness. And of course, we know who this new king was and is, and it's Jesus Christ, the Lord, our righteousness. Their new king will sit enthroned in their new hearts and enable the people to keep a new covenant. In Ezekiel 37, the Lord goes on to describe how he will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant. If a new covenant is needed, think about this with me, if a new covenant is needed, then obviously there must be something wrong with the old covenant, right? Right? If you need something new, there's something wrong with what's old. So what was wrong with the old covenant? Well, the people of Israel were in exile precisely because their sinful hearts continually broke the old covenant. In fact, the prophets talked about how the people of God would invent new ways of sinning. From the moment God called them together at Sinai, we saw the people of, of God struggle with idolatry and immorality and injustice. Once again, the sad truth is the human heart is incapable of anything else. That's why they refused to heed the prophet's warning. That's why we need new hearts. That's why we need to belong to a new kingdom. That's why God promises a new and everlasting covenant of peace. And God speaks at length about this covenant. We heard it in our Old Testament reading. Let me, let me read verse 31 and 32. The time is coming, declares the Lord, while I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. And then he goes on to talk about how this new covenant will be written in their minds. God's law will be placed in their heart. He will be their God. They will be His people. Everyone will know the Lord from the least to the greatest and He will forgive their sins and remember them no more. This new covenant is very different from the old covenant in a number of ways. First of all, the old covenant was written on stone. This new covenant will be written on what? On our hearts. The Old Covenant was an external system that was placed on the people to manage their sin. But the New Covenant will be an internal spiritual transformation that will make them spiritually alive. The Old Covenant provided for sacrifices to cover their sins so that God's wrath against sin and His holiness wouldn't consume the people. But not anymore. No longer would obedience be a condition to entering the covenant. Entering the covenant would lead them to be obedient. 
The Old Covenant provided for this ritual purity to just simply cover their sins. But God in the New Covenant will remove their sins from them and change their hearts so that they will hate sin as God does. And rather than the Old Covenant where flawed human priests are in place to mediate the relationship with God, God Himself will be the priest between He and His people. As we read earlier in Ezekiel 11, in Ezekiel 36, God reiterates the promise. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and get this, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, the very Spirit of God doesn't come just to indwell a temple or a tabernacle. He comes to indwell us. And it is the Spirit of God in us that moves us to want to keep His decrees and His laws. And this New Covenant, don't don't get a mistake here, just because we have an Old Covenant and a New Covenant, this New Covenant was not some plan B. You know, I better have something in my back pocket in case this first covenant doesn't work. No. From from, From the foundations of the world, this was always God's intention. And this new covenant contains within it all the previous covenants. This new covenant is still about God blessing the families of the world through the descendants of Abraham, through Jesus. This new covenant is still about God calling to Himself a holy, peculiar people, a treasured possession to be His priests to the world. Through this new covenant, God would bring hope and healing for the nations. And that has always been God's plan. It's just that Israel lost sight of their calling. And so as God always intended, this new covenant would reach beyond Israel to include all nations, bringing Jew and Gentile together. And that's exactly what we see happen in the New Testament. Through Jesus' death and resurrection and through the birth of the church at Pentecost. Becoming covenant citizens of God's kingdom with new hearts ruled by King Jesus is made possible by God's Spirit as He breathes into us new life. New life. Look with me at Ezekiel 37. At the... Interesting vision of the valley of dry bones. It says in verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so Ezekiel prophesies to these bones as it commanded. And it says in verse 7, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together bone to bone and then skin covered them, but there was still no breath in them. And so he prophesies for the breath to come upon them. And it does. And they stand before him as a vast army. And in verse 11, he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. 
They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. O my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my Spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. In his book, Revitalize, Andrew Davis, pastor of First Baptist Church in Durham, North Carolina, he talks about revisiting these astonishingly beautiful church buildings all around the world. Like the St. Vitus Cathedral in Prague. It was built in 1344. It held worshipers for over 500 years. He describes its beautiful stained glass windows. But it stands in the midst of one of the most godless nations on earth and the echoes of worship have long since faded from its walls. It now stands, he says, as a museum of human artistic achievement. Or take the church in Germany where Martin Luther preached his last sermon. It now stands as an empty historical site. Or an impressive Amsterdam cathedral that's now a fashion boutique. Or a handsome little church in Massachusetts which is now an art store. In fact, it's a real problem among church planters in many of our cities, especially in the Northeast and in in, in church planters in Europe because they're struggling to find facilities for these new churches to worship in because all the church buildings have become restaurants and stores and apartment buildings. Like Ezekiel, we can envision standing over the valley of Western civilization and confronted with dry bones the empty and dead buildings that once held vibrant and growing churches. And I wonder, will we soon look over our own church and see the bones of dead and dying programs and traditions that once were fruitful but are no more? And will we wonder, can these bones live? Can the church in America experience new life? Can we once again reach the lost around us with the good news of Jesus Christ? Can we make a difference in our community, country, and world? Can we see a resurgence in missions, in giving, in personal evangelism, in fervent spirit-led worship? Can we reclaim the family from a culture that wants to strip it apart? Can we see a new great awakening sweep the dry valley of the United States of America? That's what I wonder. Can these bones live? But you know what I believe? I believe that if God's people will humble themselves and seek His face and turn from their wicked ways, He will hear from heaven, forgive our sins, and once again fill us with His life-giving Spirit. We can hear them rattling bones come to life. But we need new hearts. We need to see ourselves first and foremost as citizens of a new heavenly kingdom. We need King Jesus on the throne and we need His covenant truth and grace written in our hearts. Because if our new hearts, if we have new hearts and we're living in a new kingdom, I believe that we will experience a glorious future, new beginning. Ezekiel points to a day when God's glorious presence, which had departed wicked Jerusalem, just as God promised, that it would once again come to indwell a new temple. Ezekiel 40 through 43 describes a vision that sounds very reminiscent of John's vision of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. 
And both of them are describing a future where God will come down and tabernacle among His people for the rest of eternity. It's a future where there will be no more sin, no more idolatry, no more shame to come between a holy God and His people. Listen to what Revelation 21 says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The new temple and the new city are beautiful visions of this new reality where God will come to dwell among His people. And in fact, in Ezekiel, when he talks about this new city, he never calls it Jerusalem. Instead, he says, and the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. The point is God's glorious and holy presence is now and forever with His people on earth. He will never again depart. He will never again need to exile His people because as John wrote, the old order of things have passed away and behold, all things are new. And that's the glorious future that awaits all of us who belong to Christ. A new creation. Ezekiel and Revelation both conclude with a picture of a new heaven and a new earth. One that echoes the Garden of Eden. As you read that description, it, it, it's all these trees and this life and it's so, it's so lush. And new life flourishes for all of creation. Death and decay are gone and only life remains. And both Revelation and Ezekiel end with this picture of a river of life flowing from the throne of God, flowing from the temple in Jerusalem to all of creation, transforming everything with life. This morning I want you to consider, has the river of God's love touched your heart? Maybe this morning you do need to come to the Lord for a heart transplant. And let me tell you something. God knows your heart. God sees right into the heart of who you are. He knows everything you think. He knows everything you say. He knows everything you do. He knows every motive of your heart. He knows your heart. So don't think that you've got to somehow get your act cleaned up before you can come to Jesus. Because if you wait to come to Jesus after you get your act cleaned up, guess what? You'll never come to Jesus. The point of going for a heart transplant isn't that your heart is healthy. It's that your heart is sick and uncurable. And Jesus this morning wants to give you a new heart. If you've never come to faith in Christ, if you've never experienced Him transforming your heart, in a moment as we sing, I invite you to come and experience that today. God longs to give you a new heart. He wants you to live in His new kingdom where He is your Lord and King. He wants to give you a fresh start, a new beginning. You can have all things new in your life if you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this morning you may be a Christian, but your walk with Christ doesn't look so much like a, a lush river of life. Your walk with Christ looks more like a valley of dry bones. Well, I want you to know this morning that through the Holy Spirit, God can come into your life and breathe anew and afresh and He can give you a new beginning. As a Christian, He can breathe new life into you, into the, the parts of your life that have become cold and stale. God can still soften your heart. So maybe you're a follower of Christ this morning, but you need to come and you need to repent 
of some sin in your life, you need to repent of some apathy, of some attitude in your heart that has made it hard and cold and lifeless, let the Spirit of God come upon you anew and afresh this morning. Maybe God has spoken to you, you've been worshiping with us for a while, and you know that today is the day for you to come and to unite with this church, to be on this great journey that we're on together as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. You come as God leads as we stand and sing together today.